Actually, if you'd please stand for the preaching of this sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Some of you are about to walk out where it's like, I'm not standing up again. I don't care what they ask me to do. Hey, well, so we're working our way through one of the most famous sermons, through Jesus' actually most famous sermon. It's a sermon found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we think about this sermon, it's really important that we understand the backdrop and the context for the sermon. And so to know that, you just got to know that Jesus talked about one thing more than he talked about anything else, and that was the kingdom of God. He announced it, he proclaimed it, and he didn't just say it was coming someday, he said it was here now. He proclaimed it not for tomorrow, but for today. And when we talk about the kingdom of God... I want to be real clear. We're talking about that, the sphere of God's reign, right? We're talking about that place where God's will is perfectly expressed. God's will is perfectly done. And there were two reasons, I think, why Jesus talked about the availability of the kingdom of God now. Not just something that was going to come someday, but something that was here now. And the first was this, that Jesus as the Messiah, as the king of that kingdom was here. So the king of that kingdom is here. And so that's one reason. And secondly, Jesus wasn't just here to be the king of that kingdom. He was here to uh, perfectly express the will of God with his life. So it wasn't just that he was the king of that kingdom. He was the embodiment of that kingdom as well. Now, the reason I'm talking so much about the kingdom of God is because it is the backdrop and it is the context for the Sermon on the Mount. And part of what the Sermon on the Mount is doing is announcing the reality of the kingdom of God for ordinary men and women now. And so today, I want to talk about the importance of your heart. Even though the word heart is not mentioned in this passage, but I'm going to show you why it's so critical to this passage and why it's so important uh, in your own life. Now, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not talking about your physical So I'm going to pick this up. And, oh, is that me? That's me. Never mind. All right. So uh, anyway, it's that invisible part of you that musicians and philosophers and preachers and poets talk about all the time. It's that part of you that got broken in ninth grade when Mary Jane or Tommy Joe told you they just wanted to be friends, Right? It's that part of you that gets nostalgic when you hear an old Journey song, right? Okay, maybe that's just me, but whatever band it is for you, right? It's that part of you that gets nostalgic when you hear it. The heart I'm talking about today is that part of you that enables you to love, to laugh, to fear, and even to hate, so when I talk about the heart, I'm talking about that sphere of your life where relationships happen, and it's also that sphere of your life where relationships get broken. Your heart is the source from which your life flows. It is that inner reflection of you that you work so hard to hide from everyone else. 
Listen, we live from the heart. We love from the heart. We laugh from the heart. And we mourn. We grieve from the heart. Your heart is that sphere of your life where your relationships are forged and where they're broken. And let me tell you this. Your heart is the, is the place where your wounds gather. Your wounds gather there. It's where you collect your wounds your heart is that part of you that asks questions which can't always be answered at the kitchen table. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What am I, what am I made of? What am I destined for? This is why when the Bible talks about the heart, it talks about the heart like a treasure, like something that you have to guard. In fact, Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Now, the reason it's so important to guard your heart, to be diligent in that, is because of something that we all know, and that's this. Life can be hard on your heart. Life can be hard on all of our hearts. Life has a way of taking a toll on our hearts. Because here's the reality, every single one of us in this room has experienced hurt and rejection, some of us over and over and over again, and even though sometimes uh, it may feel like I'm the only one. This is why we've developed language over the years to describe a broken heart. So we say things like this, I'll never trust another man. I'll never give my heart to anyone again. He broke my heart. She wounded me deeply. And even when we are describing someone whose heart has been damaged, you know, we look at them and we say things like this. We say, well, you know, he's hard-hearted, or she has walls, or he has trust issues, or she has problems with authority, or he's just cold and angry. Every single one of us in this room, we have hearts that have been broken, that have been damaged, and that subsequently that have been hardened. And the reality is what's so sad about this is heart issues always take their toll on relationships. They always do. Now, when we're children, when we're growing up, we're taught by our parents to focus on our behavior, the things that we say, the things that we do. Um, in other words, we're taught how to behave, right? Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not going to talk to us about how to behave. Jesus is focused on something much more important than behavior. He's focused on the heart, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to people who've been focused on their behavior, and that's all. How do they measure up to the law of Moses? How well or poorly are they keeping the law? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to insist that people actually do more, that they dig deeper than just thinking about their behavior. See, and in the Sermon on the Mount, He's going to issue some commands that he's going to insist actually supersede some of the commandments found in the law. He is going to contradict the law in this sermon over and over and over again. And this is why he says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or to destroy the law. Don't think I've come to do that. 
If that's what you think, you're misunderstanding me. I have not come to abolish or to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Now, why did he feel the need to say that he had not come to abolish the law? Because he knew that as he began to teach, that is exactly what people were going to think that he was doing. Because in his day, you only quoted Moses. You didn't contradict Moses. But Jesus is going to actually uh, uh, contradict that. He's going to raise the bar on Moses over and over and over again. And here's how he's going to do it. You're going to see this formula in this whole series. He's going to say things like this. Hey, you've always heard. Like you've always heard, don't commit adultery. This is one of the Ten Commandments, right? And then he says, "But, but I say, anyone who has lust in his heart has already committed adultery in his heart. See, he raises the bar. He digs deeper. He doesn't go for behavior. He, he doesn't go for the symptom. He goes for the cause. He goes right for the heart. He'll say things like this. You've heard it said, do, do not murder. This is another one of the Ten Commandments, right? Bedrock of the law. Jesus says, no, no, no. That doesn't go far enough. You've always heard that, but I say anyone who's angry with his brother has already murdered in his heart. See, so he's going again. Not for the symptom, right? The the symptom of murder is anger. That's the root cause. And that is what Jesus is going to go for all day long in this sermon. He is going to raise the bar on Moses again and again and again and again. He's going to say adultery is a symptom of lust in the heart. Murder is a symptom of anger in the heart. In fact, Jesus kind of said essentially the same thing elsewhere in a different sermon. I want you to listen to what he said. This is Matthew 15, 19. He said, he's commenting on the heart, yours and mine. And he says, uh, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, the reason all that stuff comes out of you is because all that stuff is in you. It's in your heart. You know, we try to pretend it's not there. We try to ignore it. We try to work our way around it. But it's in there. All that stuff, all that behavior simply reveals what is in your heart. And it wasn't just Jesus. The prophet Jeremiah said essentially the same thing in the Old Testament. Look what he said about your heart and mine. He said, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. In other words, it will lead you astray every time. And it's incurable. Like there's nothing you can do about it. All the self-discipline in the world, all the self-help talk in the world will not change your heart. And who can understand it? So Jeremiah is saying, not only does that stuff come out of you because it's in you, but there's nothing you can do about it. Your heart is incurable. So when you hear, and I hear this all the time, when you hear someone say something like, oh, well, just follow your heart. That is terrible advice. 
It's absolutely terrible advice. Don't do that. Uh, if you follow your heart, it will lead you astray. It will cause you to do dumb and stupid things every single time. You know why? Because your heart is broken. It's hard. So, yeah, so the backdrop uh, of the words we're going to explore today is this, and it's so important to keep this in mind. The law, the law of Moses could only focus on behavior. It could do nothing to change a heart. But in the kingdom of God, the focus is on the heart. And while the law has no power to change a heart, Jesus Christ changes hearts every single day. And this should be good news for those of us who brought hurts, you know, habits and hang-ups that are lodged in our hearts today. This is incredible news and incredible testimony. And so, uh, so what is it exactly that Jesus has come to do with the law and the prophets? What did he mean when he said he had come not to abolish or destroy the law, but to fulfill it? Well, I think the answer lies in what he said next. Look at Matthew 5.18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So a couple of questions here. So what did he mean by when all things are accomplished. What specifically has to be accomplished? And I want you to notice that the implication is the law is going to disappear once all things are accomplished. So if Jesus didn't come to destroy the law or to abolish it, what did he come to do? He came to fulfill it. Now, in the book of Matthew, the word fulfill always means the same thing. To fulfill means to bring something to a designated end. So Jesus was the end of the line for the law. So let me tease this out because it's kind of hard to distinguish between uh, bringing something to an end versus destroying something. So this means that if the law were a homework assignment, Jesus was completing it. If the law were a speech, Jesus was concluding it. If the law was a plane, Jesus was landing it. Jesus wasn't crashing the plane, he was landing it. He wasn't erasing the speech, he was concluding it. He wasn't tearing up the homework assignment, he was completed, completing it. This is why Dr. John Piper puts it this way, Jesus was not just another member in the long line of wise men and prophets, he was the end of the line. For the law of Moses. I love that. Jesus was the end of the line. And this is exactly why New Testament writers say over and over again, they say things like this, Christians are no longer under the law, but under what? Anybody tell me? Yeah, grace, right? Or, hey, the law was our tutor put in charge for a time so that it might show us our need for Christ. See, I mean, this is widely acknowledged throughout the New Testament. Now, according to Jesus, nothing would disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, which is exactly what happened. 
So I'm just going to give you a free three-minute history lesson. For the 40 years after Jesus, the nation of Israel would look for ways to stomp out a growing movement that, that was called the way that would later come to be known as Christianity. It was called the way as a name for its founder who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. But on August 6th in the year 70 AD, the practice of Judaism, as it was described in the Old Testament, came to an abrupt end. On that day, the Jewish temple was looted, it was burned, and it was destroyed. And so while the words of that covenant were preserved perfectly for you and I to read, remember when Jesus said, uh, hey, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away? That's a jot and a tittle. Let me tell you what a jot is. A jot is what happens when you put a dot on the letter I. That's a jot. And a tittle is what happens when you just put a little curve at the end of a letter that you're writing, right? That's a jot or tittle. So what Jesus is saying, this is so incredible to me. He's saying, even though people won't be able to live the law, I mean, listen, Judaism hasn't been practiced since AD 70, friends. But yet you and I can still open up our Bible and every jot and every tittle of the law is still available right there for us to read, just like Jesus said. And yet, just Jesus said this, you know, not one jot or tittle of the law is going to disappear. Now, there's one question I've been asking all morning that I haven't answered yet, and that is, what did Jesus mean that until all things are accomplished? What, ha- what specifically had to be accomplished? Well, scholars have long debated the significance of Jesus' last words on the cross. They're found in John 19.30. And essentially, the words are this, it is finished. It is accomplished. It's done. It's over. Everything has been accomplished. And even though Jesus himself was far from finished, something else was. Perhaps with his final words, Jesus was announcing to his followers that he had finished what he started, that he had fulfilled the law, bringing it to its designated end. And this is why, friends, and this is not widely talked about, this is why at the exact moment of his death, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's significant because that means God's the one who tore the veil in the temple in two, right? Now, um, so the word for veil, so I want to talk about why that's so significant. The word for veil used in Matthew is meant to represent the inner veil of the temple between uh, the Holy of Holies and where the priests would offer their sacrifices. And the veil's primary function was to separate the holy place. Well, the primary function of the veil is simple. It was to separate the unclean from the clean. God's righteousness and holiness and the uncleanness of the temple priests or the sinfulness of men. And this is all meant to symbolize that a new way to God had come. 
based on the death of Jesus. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there was no longer a barrier between that which was clean, God, and that which was unclean, which was man. The law had been that barrier for thousands of years, but now that day had come to an end. So because Jesus didn't, Jesus came to bring something new. He came to usher in something new, something based not on better behavior, but a better heart. He came not just to treat the symptoms, he came to treat the cause. And this was actually a promise found in the Old Testament. It was found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, verse 19. Listen to what God promises to do. He says, I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies. Let's just stop there for a minute. Your heart of stone is all that bitterness that's collected in your, in your heart over the, all over the years. All that rejection, all that shame, all that guilt, all that hardness of heart, all that pulling back from other people to protect and preserve your heart. That's what a heart of stone is. And Jesus promises, I'm going to take all that away. And it's not just that he's going to take it away. He says, I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. In other words, a soft heart, a responsive heart to God. No longer will you want to wall yourself up off from God. You're going to, you're going to want to know God. And here's the incredible thing about this promise. Our God gives people new hearts. He transforms hearts. He takes hard-hearted people and makes their hearts soft by his grace, his mercy, and his kindness. And then I want you to look at what Jesus says next, back to Matthew 5, back to this famous sermon. He says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, now the question is, which commands is he talking about? Is he talking about the commands of the law or is he talking about the commands he's about to give? Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what have I told you repeatedly about the context and backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount? Apparently, I need to say it again, right? That the kingdom of God is the context for the Sermon on the Mount. So when he says that people are going to be called least in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about what he's about to say. And furthermore, he uses the word commands in these verses in verse 19 is a completely different word in the Greek language than the word he's using to refer to the law in verses uh, 16 and 17. Completely different word. See, he's already said, look, I came to bring the law to an end. So he's not, he's not going right back and saying, so therefore anybody that teaches people to break the law, he's not saying that. He's saying, look, the commands I'm about to give you, they supersede the law. I'm the end of the line for the law. And he knows that the reason people would think that is because it would sound like that's exactly what he was doing. So uh, these verses are often incredibly misunderstood. What Jesus is really saying here, he's saying, look, there's a new sheriff in town. And it's not Moses and it's not the law. It's me. 
It's me. I'm giving you new commands today. Commands focused not on your behavior, which was all the law could diagnose, but commands based on your heart. I'm going to raise the bar, and I'm going to dig and go deeper, and that's going to make this that much more substantive, right? That's what my kingdom is all about, is changed hearts, not just good behavior, uh, so, you know, so he's talking about these commands that are so often just focused on the heart. Anger in the heart, which would result in murder. Lust in the heart, that would result in adultery. And then look at the last thing Jesus says here, and this is so important. He says, for I tell you, and unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now listen, when Jesus made this statement, the air went out of the room. This seemed impossible to his first century audience. There was no way they could be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees because the scribes and the Pharisees devoted themselves to the law. They studied the law. They kept it as well as anyone And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, I came to bring a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness that can be attained through the law. Because it only focuses on behavior, but I focus on hearts. See? And so this leads us to really the ask of the morning, and I'm going to land the plane. Here's how I'm going to land it. In Psalm 51, David prays a prayer, King David, the king of Israel, And it's a prayer that should be a regular part of every single one of our prayer lives. And here's what he said. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I want you to make make a couple of observations about this verse. First, I want you to notice that we can't clean out our own heart. He doesn't say, hey, God, give me the strength to clean out my heart. Or, God, give me the perseverance to clean out my heart. No, David knows he can't do it. He asks God to do it. He recognizes that only God can transform and change a heart. He asks God to do it because only God can. So here's the dilemma for all of us. Every single one in this room have hearts that have been damaged, that have been betrayed, that have been broken over and over and over again. And so Jesus comes to us and he says, listen, I want you to trust me with your heart. Well, I don't know. Like Jesus says, no, listen, if you give me your heart, and follow me, I'll change it. I'll transform your heart. I'll give it back to you, and it'll be brand new. It'll be soft. It'll be responsive to me. But you got to look for me to do that work. You can't think that you can do that work. Your heart's incurable. That's what Jeremiah said. Remember that? So we have to be willing to offer up our heart to Jesus. Here's what I'm telling you, and this is really, this is You can't be a follower of Jesus if you're not willing to offer Jesus your heart and allow him to begin to shape and transform it. It's not about behavior. That's only the symptom of what's going on in here. That's 
what Jesus is going for. It's what he wants to go for in you, and it's what he wants to go for in me. And so really, this is a prayer. And so let me just ask you a couple questions about this prayer. Have you prayed this prayer lately? Are you, are you even aware of what has been going on inside your heart? You know, sometimes a wife will blow up at her husband and she'll say, man, I can't believe I said all that. And Jesus would say, well, the reason you said all that is because it was in there. Or maybe it's, it, you know, maybe it's on the husband who, who does the same thing, right? The reason we say those things is because all of those things are lurking in our hearts, in our hearts. Now, I know all of you have prayed a prayer like this. Hey, God, would you clean my husband's heart? Hey, God, would you clean my wife's heart? I'm not asking you if you prayed that prayer. Because here's the thing. Your heart is the only heart God can change. Like, you can't present your wife's willing heart to the Lord, right? You can't present your husband's willing heart to the Lord, but you have all the power in the world to present your willing heart to the Lord. So have you prayed that prayer? Have you asked God for it? So here's what we're going to do. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your heart. I want to pray that your heart would be changed. I want to pray that God would do good things not only in your heart, but for your heart. And then we're going to celebrate and remember Jesus together by taking communion. So would everybody just bow their heads for just a minute? Hey, God, life is just hard on our hearts. Stuff accumulates in there. And so, uh, God, we just probe our heart now. We acknowledge the bitterness that's there, the resentment that's sometimes there, the anger that's sometimes there, the, the worry that, that's sometimes there, the shame, the guilt that is sometimes there. We acknowledge it all, and we give our hearts to you in this moment, and we ask you to create in us a clean heart, O oh Lord, and to renew within us a steadfast spirit. God, thank you that you're in the business of changing hearts, changing lives, not just behavior. God, as parents, I mean, it's awesome to focus on the behavior of our kids, but God, way more important than our kids' behavior is their heart. And God, I'm so grateful that as, a, as our heavenly father, you get that. And that's where you go. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about. Changed and transformed hearts. So God, we're so grateful. We're so hopeful. Because there's a lot of dark stuff that lurks in our hearts today. And so we offer our hearts to you and we ask you, just as the prophet Ezekiel promised, we ask you to take our hearts of stone, our broken hearts, our hardened hearts, and we ask you to replace them with hearts of flesh. Would you begin that work now, this day, in this very moment, in these very hearts? And all God's people, and we pray this in your name, and all God's people said. Amen. Now listen, the reason that that hope exists, that our hearts can be shaped and changed, is solely and only because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus validated every claim he ever made. 
And it demonstrated and proved that he has the authority and the power to reach inside of you and reach inside of me and make us new. So we take communion here the first Sunday of every month. And every single time that we take communion, we're always doing the same thing. We're remembering together the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Jesus. You're going to notice we have a table here. We have a table here. We also have tables in the same aisles at the back. So I want to invite you in just a minute. I'm going to release you, and I want to invite you to come and get an element. You're going to grab a piece of bread. You can even grab gluten-free bread if you need that option, and you're going to grab um, a little wine, and then you can do one of two things with that. You can either go back down the center or back down the sides to your seat if you're more comfortable doing that. But for many, many years, we would invite people here to come up to the altar to pray. And um, we want to open that back up. So you don't have to go back to your seat. If you would prefer, you can just come to the altar. Just leave me like a little path to walk up and down. That's all I ask. Just a little area right here that I can work through. But otherwise, your family can gather here. You know, you can just get here and present your heart to God if you prefer to do that. But every one of us, whether we're here at the altar, whether we're in our seats, we're going to hold on to our bread. We're going to hold on to the cup. And then, and then um, after we've worshiped for a moment, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to prompt us all to remember Jesus together. Friends, there's such power in together. There's such power in community. And so hold on to it once you grab it, whether you're in your seat at the altar. So let me just pray that Jesus would do good things in us as we, as we remember him together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the amazing depth of your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for the quality of your sacrifice. You gave your very best for every one of us in this room. And so help us be men and women of gratitude, of surrender. Help us be willing to offer you back our very, very best. Because that's how you gave. Make us like you. Help us remember you well in these next few moments. We ask and we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And so now come and receive. The altar is open. <laughs>